Man, one of the things that I love about this church is how gifted and how uh, just beautiful the church is. I mean, there's no other, I, I say organism. Some people would say organization, but I say that we're alive. So we're not just an organization, we're an organism. There's no other organism like the church. I mean, we're a bunch of people from different backgrounds, and we show up to worship together the same God. And the only reason why we're here is because of that God. Man, that's just like the best news ever. So, we are in the final sermon of our sermon series, right? We've been journeying through what it looks like to be an alternative community because, man, are we living in a fractured society, right? I mean, it just... It doesn't matter. You can even, you could even delete all social media. You could even try to go into a cave and I'm sure somehow a bird would fly in and start to bring up the divisiveness of the culture. I mean, it's just, that's the, that's the age that we are in. It's like you can't even escape it, right? The most negative word in the English language right now, thank you Rajan, is positive. I mean, man, I did not see that one coming. But it's true, right? You test positive, and that's, I mean, it brings a lot of negativity to it, right? It almost seems like our world is flipped upside down. But there's some good news, because we know that there is a coming king, and that he really will flip the world upside down, and he'll actually, in fact, he won't even, he, he's, he's just going to give us a new world. Praise the Lord. So we've been journeying through this series, and today we get to talk about something that is, is perhaps... Um, it, to me personally is everything. The mission. To me it's, it, it means everything. I filter every single thought, theological truth, etc. through the mission because we see that God is a God of mission in the Bible. In fact, I remember when I showed up to school to study to be a pastor, my very first class was 8 a.m. in the morning, Hebrew 1. And I remember sitting there and my professor, Martin Klingbeil, Dr. Klingbeil, he speaks seven different languages. He's German, but he has his doctorate from this uh, seminary in Stellenbosch, South Africa. He's very well-traveled, incredibly articulate. He writes up this, what looks like just a box or some, some, you know, some chicken scratch doctor's handwriting on the whiteboard. And he says, that is Hebrew. And I said, no way are you going to get to teach this boy, this, this, this southerner, to understand that. It's just not going to happen. There's just no way that I'm going to be able to look at that and say, yep, that says something. I could make up something, but there's, there's no way. And then as we started to go through the semester, and he starts to show that, that really Hebrew 1 is all about the nouns, the adjectives. It's all the components of language except for verbs. And then Hebrew 2, you start to... All of Hebrew 2, an entire semester, you start to begin understanding verbs. And then all of Hebrew 3 is verbs. And the reason for that is because in Hebrew, the verb really is the main part of the sentence. In English, it'd be the noun. In Hebrew, it's the verb. Which shows that God is a God of action. That He's not a God that is passive. Because the language that the Old Testament was written in originally is all about God or His people doing something. And so it's mission. God is a God on mission. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew 28. We're going to be looking at really just three verses today because there's a lot that we can unpack from these three verses. But my prayer and my hope today is that not only would we, would we understand the mission that God is calling us towards, 
but that we would learn practically how we can go and do it, even beginning this afternoon. So as we turn to Matthew 28, just bow your heads with me for prayer. Father, we are opening up your word. And Lord, we know that we come from, from work weeks, whether that was busy or whether that was uh, frantic, whether that was stressful or whether that was just kind of another week at the office. Lord, we know that we come from, from our various situations. And so as we approach your word, may we l- just lay aside everything that might prevent us from hearing how you're speaking to our heart this morning. For really, we have not shown up to hear a sermon from a pastor, but to hear from you directly. And so, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Matthew 28, the context is Jesus is giving what is known as the Great Commission. It's this, it's this proclamation to, to go out and live the way that he wants his followers to live. And he's telling his disciples, these individuals that have traveled with him, they've lived with him, they've, they've, you know, they've gotten their hands in the dirt with him, they've seen some amazing things, right? I mean, Jesus has calmed a storm when they were frantically, perhaps with their hands, trying to shovel water out while Jesus is asleep, right? These are the disciples that Jesus is speaking to. And he gives them what is known in Christianity as the Great Commission, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. You ever been sold something? You ever, you, ever, you ever have somebody try really, really hard to sell you on some type of product? I remember growing up, there was this man, his name was Billy Mays, and he had this amazing thing called Mighty Putty. And his, his idea was that Mighty Putty was the solution to whatever problem you had. I mean, if you had a toothache, just put some Mighty Putty on it. You know, if your car doesn't have a wheel on it, you could put some Mighty Putty on it. I mean, the way that he sold Mighty Putty was as if it was the one-stop shop for every single solution. And I remember just being so fascinated with the confidence in which he was trying to sell me on some... I don't even remember what Mighty Putty was used for. I just remember Billy Mays. And then there was this rag, this dish towel, right? Sham Wow. Right? As if there's paper towels won't get the job done. But sham wow, man, wow. Right? But, but it's just so fascinating that, you know, there are these individuals, there are these personalities that are really, really good at selling you on things. And sometimes as Christians, we tend to think that the message is, is, as, is as if it's coming through, trying, we're trying to be sold something. But Jesus is not a salesman. Jesus is not, he's not interested in trying to give you the best pitch. He's really just presenting you with a new opportunity for newness of life. It's not a, oh, what's the catch here, right? Like, am I going to continually get those emails that I've, I've subscribed 700 times, but it keeps popping up in my inbox, so I have to make a new email account to try to get away, right? Is it, no, it's, there's no catch. There's no, oh, all of a sudden now you're going to have to, you know, start paying this X amount and your contract is for this long and so we got you. No, with Jesus, it's very simple. Here is a new opportunity for a newness of life. And if you think about it, we're all pitched some type of mission, whether that's, you know, we're, we work in the medical field and so our mission is to help enhance people's lives. 
But what happens when, no matter what we share with them, they go home and they don't put it into practice, right? We're not going to, even though we're telling them it, right, they're not going to see the ramifications of what we're prescribing, right? Now, (laughs) every time I go to the dentist, I'm nervous, not because I'm scared of the dentist, but because I know that they're going to tell me that I haven't been doing the best job. I just, I just know that. I just know that. And I mean, I had, um, I had the best dental hygienist out in Marietta, and she just knew. She knew that sometimes she would say something, and it was going to fall on deaf ears. Because I was going to go back, and I was going to be enticed with my old habits. It was going to be easy. It was going to be comfortable, right? Today, Jesus is going to tell us about a mission that really is challenging. But it's the greatest adventure that one could ever embark upon. You see, Jesus says, go. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go. And if we respond to that going, notice he doesn't say sit. He doesn't say relax. He says, he says go. There's an object in motion stays in motion. With Jesus, you're, you're to go. Now, his disciples would have certainly heard this this phrase, go, and they would have immediately thought of a call that is found in the Old Testament, the call of Abraham. See, Abraham is in his country with his residence, in his home with all of his family members around, and God says, go. Abraham, go. I want you to go from here, and I'm going to take you to some place that I haven't told you yet. And Abraham says, okay, he go- and he goes. And so in the Christian world, in Christian history, there are so many instances of people who have responded to Christ's call to go. Here is William Carey. He is known as the father of modern missions. But he was inspired by another man who went. He was inspired by a man named David Brainerd. David Brainerd grew up in in the northeastern side of the United States, 1700s, and he was a missionary to the Indians. And he had tuberculosis. It was terminal. And yet, as he was dying, he was giving every ounce of himself to bring the Indians into a relationship with Christ. Not in a superior uh, superior way of, I have the truth and you're uh, far from God, but hey, here's the best news. Here's this new reality. Here's an opportunity that we have, that you can have because of Jesus. And so David Brainerd passed away before he turned 30, but in his diary, William Carey finds, in his, finds his diary, and it changes everything. And so William Carey leaves... Uh, the United Kingdom and goes to India. And there's a church in Calcutta that has direct lineage to William Carey. He went. He responded to this command to go. Here is a a, a grainy picture from the 60s. This is Carmelito Galang. He's on the right, and he's translating Neil Wilson's sermons in Tagalog in the Philippines. Now, Neil Wilson is the former, he's one of the prior world... Adventist Church presidents. So he's like top-level administrator, and Carmelito Galang is his translator. But Carmelito Galang is a pastor who was from the Philippines, planted several churches in America, one in Hinsdale, Illinois, and several others in California. And they're there because they've responded to the, the call to go. And so they went. They left the comfort of their own home, and they went to another country. And they're, and they're preaching, and they're proclaiming the good news about Jesus. Now, I had to include this picture because 
Not 60s, it's the 80s? Okay, it's the 80s, not the 60s. The reason why I know that is because Carmelito Galang was the voice of prophecy speaker for the Philippines and is Carissa's grandfather. And he responded to the call to go. And so he was born in the Philippines and he came over to America. Because with Christ, you're called to go on a mission. You're not called to be, to be complacent and to, to sit, but you're called to go. This is William Tecumseh Vernon and Fanny Coppins. They, went to, they were missionaries to South Africa. Separate times, separate individuals, did not know each other, and yet they both went to South Africa and developed educational systems based off of the curriculum of Christ. Because when Christ calls you to go, you go. That's the mission, is to go. It's not one where you're sitting and you're, you're relaxing and, you, and you're just kind of going through life. No, there's intentionality. You're, you're, you're on the move. You know that you're on the move. And in Matthew, Jesus is telling his disciples to go. Go therefore. And then he says, make disciples of all nations. Notice it's not make disciples of only your friends or only those that look like you. Only those that like the same music as you. Only those that are sports fans like you are. Only those who, who they're easy to get along with. Right? No, go into all the world and make disciples. So what is a disciple? Right? Because that word kind of carries with it some religious jargon. Right? So Luke chapter 6 verse 40 says that a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And so therefore we know that a disciple could be better translated as a student. Now, if you're like me, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to go to school. I'm, I'm, I, like to, I like to learn on my own. I don't really want to constantly be, you know, given requirements. Here's the syllabus or here's the homework assignments. I'd rather do it because I'm, I'd rather study what I'm interested in, right? I struggled with math class because I just, it, it bored me. I'm sorry for all the mathematicians, but math was not my thing. I'm an English guy, right? And so hearing, oh, a disciple is a student, and that sounds, okay, wait a second, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, what all that means is, is that we're following Jesus. Jesus is our teacher, and we're trying to be like him. In fact, the Jewish educational system was one in where, just like in the South, if your kid is athletically gifted, and you're like, oh, yes, like, if, if you're a parent, you're like, oh, happy day, right? Like, my kid is going to make it professionally, and I'm just going to reap those rewards, Right? And so we put our kids in these sports programs where, you know, they, they have this coach and this coach and this coach and they're watching film. Or, I mean, it's, it's, it's gnarly. Can I say that? It's gnarly now. I mean, it's just absolutely, you know, no more are kids having an off-season. It's like you go from this sport to this sport to this sport, hoping that maybe one of them makes it. They make it pro in one sport, right? Could you imagine in, in the South if you were growing up and you wanted to play a professional sport, to not try to study the greats. Could you imagine? You want to make it very far. Right? It's natural. You're going to go and you're going to look at who's good at, what this, at this sport, at this position, who's, who kind of uh, has the same maybe height or, or stature as I that I can kind of pattern my game after. And in the early uh, Jewish culture, the main emphasis was if you, were, if you were a boy, you wanted to be a rabbi. In fact... You wanted to be a rabbi so bad that you would learn, you would, you would memorize the Old Testament, you'd memorize the first five books of the Bible, then you would memorize some more as you progressed through the educational system, and then eventually, if you were good enough, 
you would be called to follow a rabbi. And by following that rabbi, what that means is you're literally, you're, you're, you're matching their step with your step. So if they go this way, you're like, yep. So now it looks the exact same as you follow behind them. I mean, you want to be so close behind them that there was this blessing where it was almost like, uh, I hope that your rabbi's feet, or the, that your rabbi's, the dust off your rabbi's feet makes it into your face, or something like that. I mean, it's just like, you know, I hope, I hope your rabbi's dust off of his feet is making it into your face. It's like, it's, it's phrased a lot better than that, but that's, that's how it's coming out right now. But that's, that's what you strove for. That's, that's, that's what you strive to accomplish, is you were so close to your rabbi, you were so much like your rabbi, that you were almost indistinguishable. And that's what a disciple is where you're becoming so much like the person who's teaching you, your teacher, your rabbi. Rabbi just means teacher. And so a disciple is not somebody who just in their bio says, I'm a Christian. A disciple is somebody who's actively trying to follow Jesus and, and feel out what that new reality looks like in the here and now. There are a few things as a Christian that, that really kind of, I, I don't have a temper. I've, I've never really been someone who has struggled with anger. Um, I, I don't know what it was, just disposition, just very kind of, okay, I'll let it slide off my back. There are two things that bother me. Racism, and then people saying they're Christians and not living up to it. Those are the two things that really, really irk me, and it, like immediately. It's just how it is. And the reason for it is because I think it's, if you're going to say you're something, you should, you should be committed to it. You shouldn't be just like passively saying, you know, I kind of dabble in this, right? Because that'd be like me saying that I dabble as, um, I, you know, I dabble in knitting. I've never even knit before. I don't. I shouldn't, that's, a, that's a lie, right? If I were to say, yeah, I, I knit, and I've never knitted before. I'm not actively trying. I'm a knitter, but I've never really, I don't even have the tools. I'd be lying, right? We shouldn't lie. And so there's no sitting on the fence with this mission. It's either you're going or you're not going. But Christ says, who are we to go to? We are to go and make disciples, but we're to go into all the world. Jesus modeled this. Look what it says. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So if we're a Christian, we're to be literally following. We're to try to be so much like Jesus that we're going where Jesus would go which will get you in some tricky situations and some tricky conversations. But that's where Jesus is. That's where our rabbi will lead us. That's where our teacher will lead us. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, this is perhaps my favorite quote outside of the Bible. He says this, this is the purpose of the church. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Which means that when we sit down to, to open up this book, when we sit down, to when we show up to church, when we, when we go to outreach events, or when we have pathfinders or, or adventurers, or we go help the poor, or whatever it is that we're doing, if we're not doing it to help men or help people connect to Christ to become more like Christ, we're, we're doing it in vain. We have an alternative mission than the one of Christ. So what does it mean to, to baptize them? Right? Because we're told to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 
See, when, when we read Matthew 28, in, in verse 19 is where we find this verse, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of this religious ordinance, right, where we stand in the water and a pastor puts his hand up and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did you know that in the Bible you actually can't find anything that says about putting a hand up? That's just a traditional thing, but most pastors will, will replicate that because they've seen it, right? Because we're, why? Because we're following what we've seen, right? And so that's what we tend to think of is we put water in the baptismal tank, and, and it is a glorious thing when somebody gets baptized, right? We talked about that last Sabbath where you're, you're literally saying that you are choosing to die to self to be raised up in this newness of life, given a new identity, and sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So now you have this alternative power that works in you and through you, and you access it by faith. But baptism is not simply the way that you become a member of the church. See, there's a proclamation that we've somehow, um, we've minimized it. And I think it's rather fitting that we explore it during this time. And you'll see what I'm saying. In this book, Caesar and the Sacrament, by Alan Street, he says, Christian baptism was an intensely political act that symbolized one's death to the present world order and allegiance to an all-encompassing kingdom of God. So when you were baptized in the early church, you said, Caesar, yeah, Caesar can go be Caesar, but uh, I serve a different king. I serve a king of a kingdom of justice and equality. There's no oppression in this kingdom. It's got an alternative culture. It's got an alternative ethic because it's got a different type of king. He goes on and he says, all rituals are transformative because that's what baptism is, right? It's this religious ritual. A child legally becomes an adult and a candidate becomes a member. An undergraduate is now a graduate. The single person is now married. The resident alien is now a citizen. And a civilian is now a soldier. In order for you to transition into that next phase, you have to go through a ritual. And so rituals are transformative. They bring you into that different reality. Rituals affect reality. They are intended to be more than hollow words or inconsequential gestures. Rituals are weighty. And I would argue the weightiest ritual that one can go through is baptism. Because you, you are proclaiming to everyone who is there to witness that, you, that your king, your lord, is Jesus. Which means that if some other king comes and tells you that you have to do something and it's out of line with your king Jesus, you say, sorry, my hands are tied. And I'm very proud to, to say that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because in the early formation of the church, did you know that the first abolition newspaper was published in the same publishing house as, as, one of the, as the earliest publication of the Adventist church? Signs of the Times, or yeah, Signs of the Times. To become an Adventist, you had to be an abolitionist because you would, you would, you would run into this problem where the, the government made it a federal law that if a slave ran away and made it to the north and you found out you had to, by law, return them to the south. An Adventist said, you can lock us up first because our king is Jesus. We don't answer to any other authority. We'll go through the punishment, yes, because we... We bow our knee only to Jesus, not to our political party, not to our president, not to the, the strongest individual in the room. No, ours was the meekest, most humble king, and he came and he vanquished everything that you can hold over us. Because death, 
no longer has dominion over us. So you can take our life because we know that we actually live for eternity. We have a different king. By definition, baptism is a ritual. Through it, individuals affiliate with the people of God and thus receive a new identity, an alternative identity, a child of God. He goes on, he says, for first century believers, this meant becoming part of a new socio-political entity, the kingdom of God, which required its citizens to reorder their lives in accordance with covenantal ethics. This sacrificial love of you first, me second. So when you were baptized, so Jesus is saying, go. Go and make students of me and then baptize them. Help them enter this new kingdom where I am king. And they will reorder their lives around this ethic of you first, me second, always. Sacrificial love. Right? That's, that's what this baptism is. But then it's not only a ritual. See, the word, if, in, if you go back to Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word baptize means, in the Greek it's baptizo, it means to immerse. Right? That's why we practice baptism by immersion. We want to be like our rabbi, we want to be like our savior, our teacher, Jesus. And how was he baptized? He was baptized by being lowered. Not because he needed to repent of sin, but because he was our example in all things. Meaning he identified us so much that he did something that was not required of him so that we could have an example. When Jesus was lowered, he was immersed, right? He was buried symbolically in the baptism, just like we're buried with his death, and then he was raised up. That's why we don't practice baptism by, by sprinkling, because Jesus was not baptized that way, and we want to be a student of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to do the exact same thing. We want to talk the same way. We want to eat the same way. We want to sing the same way. Right? We want to dress the same way. We want to be literally to where people look at us and they're like, man, that's Jesus. That's what we want. We want to become like Christ, little Christs. Well, when we think of baptizing we think of just the religious ritual. But in reality, notice what it says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You want to know what the name of God is? Exodus chapter 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So when Jesus is saying, go, go make students of me and baptize them in my name, he is saying, immerse them in the fact that God is love. He's not saying, hey, go and, go and just focus on the ritual. No, our task is to immerse them in that sacrificial love. Which means that when they show up to church, we're to immerse them in that love. We're to be so pumped that they are here, regardless of what they look like, regardless of how they talk, regardless, because they're here. We're called to immerse them in that love, because the most fundamental truth of the Bible is that God is love. So not only is it the ritual of standing in the water and symbolically being united to Christ's death and raised up with newness of life, but it's also a practical application to continually immerse them in that love. Notice the process, though. This is, I mean, I'm, I'm going to tread carefully here, but notice the process. Go, therefore, so we go, make disciples of all nations, 
So you can technically be, be a disciple before baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, and then it says, teaching them to observe all things. Sometimes we get the order mixed up. We think we need to teach them to observe all things, baptize them, and then they're a disciple. Notice what the Bible says. You can go and make a disciple. You want to know when you become a disciple? The minute you respond to what God is doing. You might not even know what God is doing. But you start to respond to his prompts on your heart, you are considered a disciple. Case in point, John 1 and John 2. Jesus, he finds these fishermen at the sea, right? And he, call, he says, come and follow me. And they leave what they have and they start following him. Then it says, another day. He goes and he finds another person. And he says, hey, come and follow me. They leave what they're doing. In fact, they go and get a friend. And then they come and they follow him. And then it says, Jesus, on the third day, he goes to a wedding. And it's him and his disciples. How long have they been following Jesus? Three days. And they're already considered a disciple. They're already included. He already claims them. But these weren't the individuals that were the scholars. These were the ones that, notice, they were fishing and they were hanging out, which means that they didn't get picked by the rabbi because they were not a promising candidate. They were rejected. But with Jesus, nobody's rejected. So they started following, and on the third day, they don't know that Jesus is taking them to the cross. They have no idea about that, and yet he's already calling them his disciple. And then in that process, they learn and then are baptized because they're immersed in his love by hanging out with him. And then after baptism, when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, they are taught how to observe all things. Why? Because you cannot be taught how to observe all things without the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, it's righteousness by works. It's salvation by works because it's the Spirit that does it all. Look at that order. That order is crucial. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Because to observe all things mean that there's a responsibility. We have to respond in a certain way. Now, that does not mean strictly the Ten Commandments, even though you could, you could find the Ten Commandments in there, but all my commandments, including the ones that say, love my enemy, including the ones that say, hey, go and, go and help the poor, even though they're going to continually fall into that cycle, you're, you're still told to go because we're told to go. See, we have an alternative mission. And the only way we accomplish this alternative mission is by accessing that alternative power. And the only way we access that alternative power is by understanding that we have an alternative identity. And the only way that we understand we have an alternative identity is by seeing the alternative ethic that Christ portrayed for us by him saying, you first, himself second, always. And the only way we see that is by understanding his culture of his kingdom of a self-giving, other-centered culture. And the only way we see that is by his act of being the only foundation for any community of him being our savior. So the only way we get there is we do not start with the mission. We start with the foundation and we trace through. Sometimes we think, oh, that means we have to go now. We got to go now. We got to go now. Well, yeah, if we, if we say yes to the foundation, we say yes to the kingdom, we say yes to the ethic, the identity, the power, then we're told to go. We're told to go. So then how do we do this, right? Because I don't want to just leave it with a, yeah, yeah, I'm told to go. How do we do that in the very real and now in such a divisive age? You ever, you ever have to go to the doctor and... Uh, I have, I have permanent nerve damage in my knee. 
because when I was playing hockey, I got hit knee to knee and my leg seized up and, and uh, I, I, I strained my TC band, which separates your hamstring from your quad, and my knee has permanent damage. And so whenever I would go get a checkup and the doctor would tap on my knee, nothing would happen because it just, it's just permanent damage. And I, I used to hate going to the doctor because they'd say, how's it going? When was the last time of your checkup? Right? Um, you know, if you're injured, how long have you been experiencing this discomfort? Right? Doctors all have these diagnostic questions because they're trying to figure out how they can help. Right? They're trying to diagnose the problem. If I asked you today where Jesus is working in your life from this past week, would you be able to give a succinct answer in full faith? Because chances are, as Christians, we're not as clear on that. And if we're not as clear on that, how can we say that we're following Jesus? Because if we're following Jesus, we should know where he's taking us. I can tell you where God is working at in my life. God is teaching me to be more patient. I can tell you that from what I'm reading. That he's teaching me to be more patient because I'm, as you guys know, I struggle with high energy. I want it to just happen. And so having to wait sometimes and sit on my hand is the, it means the most difficult thing. In fact, I'll get fidgety if I have to sit because I struggle with high energy. And God has been teaching me in the very real and now how to be more patient. Whether that's with a, road, a driver on the road and I can't get around him, so I have to sit. Or from opening up his word and him just speaking to my heart on patience. I can tell you from this past week, several incidents of him teaching me patience. So how do we, how do, we do that? And how do we do that for others? Because we're told to go. So, here are some diagnostic questions. The first question, where do you see God working in your life? If you can, if you can say, I don't know, then this next question is for you. Where or how have you seen peace joy, self-control, or patience lately that is almost out of character. Because chances are, that's where God is working. And then, if you still don't see it, right, then let me invite you. You can, you can reach out to me. My number is on our website, or you can reach out to me after this, and I'd love to sit down with you. Or one of our elders would love to sit down with you. Even online, we'd love to connect with you over the phone or over email to help you understand where God is working in your life because in order for us to know where God is taking us, right, we need to be able to see the fruit of his presence. So if we're working with a friend, because chances are when we think of discipleship and, and so, uh, there's about to be a name that pops into your head, who is God asking you to disciple right now? The person that popped into your head is who God is laying on your heart to disciple, which is scary. Because where do you begin? Well, you begin with the question, where do you see God working in your life? Now that's bold, right? Because how do you ask someone that you might not even know if they're a believer? Well, that's okay, because it's important for them to know that you are a believer. Because even if they say, I don't want to go through this, they now have a reference point who has openly said, if you ever need to know anything about Jesus, I will be here. And so then you find out on the spectrum of belief, Either they're an atheist, agnostic, or uninterested, or they're somehow, somewhere in, the, in between to a, and we're trying to get them to be a reproducing disciple. So you ask them, where do you see God working in your life? And most of the time, they'll say, what do you mean? That's just the most natural response. What do you mean? 
And then you get to say, where or how have you seen peace, joy, self-control, patience lately that seemed out of character? Most people will say, I still don't understand. They either have an instance or they don't. That's where you get to give an example of where God is working in your life and where he's teaching you. And then, after you share, you then get to extend an invitation to help them see more clearly God working in their life. And this is where you get to sit down with them and you get to open up the Bible and you get to teach them about the Savior and friend and Lord that we worship daily. Now that's scary because where do you begin on a study? Well, that's okay. You can send me an email and we'll, we'll walk through this process together. But there's a lot of content in here that all points to a good news Savior. And so we could begin anywhere because if we're partnering with the Holy Spirit, He's going to guide us. In fact, this is what we do. This is our practice. I go through those questions, those diagnostic questions. Then I go and I sit down and I write everything that I just heard from that conversation on a whiteboard or a piece of paper. And then I get down on my knees and I pray and I ask God to show me where he's been at work in their life. And then I wait for him to answer. I have started a Bible study with someone on tithe. Very first Bible study. Because the fruit of the spirit that they were, that they were seeing was self-control. Nobody would have told me to do that, but that's where God told me to do. I've started a Bible study on prayer because that's where God told me to go. It's partnering with God because he says go, right? He says go, go into all the world. But he doesn't tell us that he's going to send us by ourselves. No, in fact, at the very end, he says what? Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Meaning that when we embark upon this mission, we do not go by ourselves. No, we don't, we don't even have to do the heavy lifting. He doesn't want us to. He just says to go. Go. I, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We don't go by ourselves. That's how we do this. That's how we live out that mission. That's how we immerse them in the love of God. That's how we help them not know Bible trivia but know of a coming Savior who says that he's our greatest friend. That's how we live the mission. This church is it's quite simple. What if, what if this church was known in this community for really one thing, Jesus? And what if Jesus, what if we allowed him to be our greatest friend, our Savior, and our Lord? And what if that was it? What if when people asked us, what is your church about? We say, well, our church is about love. You first, me second, always. And we celebrate Jesus as our greatest friend, as our greatest Savior, our only Savior, and our Lord. What if that's what we were known for? It was just being a church that was about Jesus and following Jesus. That's the mission. Go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Which means that we're not trying to make them like us. We're trying to make them like Jesus. Don't try to be like me, because I will lead you astray. Try to be like Jesus, and you'll teach me something. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. Lord, we've journeyed the past six weeks through trying to figure out what it is that you're calling our church to be. Lord, we've looked at the foundation, how that foundation is really built on you as our Savior. 
We've looked at how you've given us a new identity and, and we have this power that is afforded to us, that it's appropriated to us because of the work that you have done. That we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit simply by surrender and faith. But Lord, you have given us a mission. You have told us to go into all the world, to go into Alpharetta, Georgia, to go into Milton, Georgia, to go into Cumming, Georgia, to, <coughs> to go into Atlanta, Georgia, and to help people become followers of you, not so that they have this Charlie and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket to heaven, but because you are the greatest friend that we could ever have. You are the greatest Savior. You are the truest Savior. You're the only Savior, and you also are the King of the universe. And so it's just proclaiming good news, Lord. We're not giving a sales pitch. We're not trying to be persuasive. We're not trying to, to play gotcha or just boost our church attendance. No, we truly care because of your love. And so, Lord, may you establish us as a pillar in this community that's not fixated on, on numbers or, or all of these trivial things, but is just simply fixated on knowing where you're taking us because it's ultimately disciples making disciples. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask that you would empower us to have the courage and the boldness to make disciples and to be a disciple. For we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.